brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, Our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome to Work From Your Happy Place, the podcast that equips you with the tools, know-how, and motivation to live your dreams and find your happy place. Be sure to sign up for our free weekly newsletter for a recap of the week's guests and a preview of what's in store. To sign up, simply text the word happy place with no space to 33444. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce the host of Work From Your Happy Place, Belinda Ellsworth. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Work From Your Happy Place. I'm your host, Belinda, and today is our artist edition of our show. I'm excited to welcome Josh Grizzetti with us today. Josh is an actor, director, educator, and author. As a performer, Josh originated the title role of Marty Kaufman in It Should Have Been You on Broadway, for which he won the 2015 Clarence Derwent Award and was nominated for the Drama Desk and Outer Critics Circle Awards. He also starred in Broadway's Something Rotten and Neil Simon's revival of Broadway Bound and started many off-Broadway and regional shows. On screen, Josh starred in the ABC sitcom The Knights of Prosperity, and his major film credits include The Immigrant, Revolutionary Road, The Namesake, and others. Josh currently serves as Assistant Professor of Musical Theater at California State University Fullerton and authored the book God in My Head, an Amazon number one bestseller in spirituality and religious psychology. It is my pleasure to welcome Josh to our show today. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me on. Yes. Uh, so, Josh, let's just uh, like fill in some of the gaps from that bio and let's talk about the journey, like how you got started on that path and then um, kind of what you're doing. And then we'll talk a little bit about your book. How does that sound? 
Yeah, sounds great. I mean, the path of sort of becoming an actor, which was sort of my first love, you know, started like most everybody else's path in that arena starts. I was a kid and uh, Southwest Virginia. And my parents kind of put me in all the different sports that you're supposed to do when you're a young boy in that area. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, I was just terrible at all of them. And I, I sort of hated them. Uh, <laughs> it was not my thing. And then I realized, oh, wait, there are these other things. My sister was doing a community theater production of Bye Bye Birdie. And I had never seen a musical to my knowledge <laughs> before. And I was like, oh, this this is a this is a fun thing that people do. Maybe maybe I could do that. And I was always kind of the class clown, so it sort of made sense that I would goof around on stage. So that was sort of the humble beginnings of it all. And you know, like everybody else, I did I did school theater and then community theater and then, you know, the children's theater division of the professional company nearby, the, the nearest regional house. And um, I'd start taking it seriously. And the, by the end of high school, I was studying opera because uh, I thought <laughs> I thought if, if you want to go into musicals, you got to start with opera. <laughs> that wasn't actually that accurate at the time, but uh, it's what <laughs> I thought. So um, so I actually I, I got a, became part of this program that we went to to Rome Italy and performed two operas there while we studied, you know, music during the day. And then while I was there, one of the faculty members said, you know, you've got a really bright, you know, sound, you, you'd really be suited well for musical theater. And I said, Oh, that's what I want to do. <laughs> and she said, Well, then why are you in opera training? Like, go, go do that. So uh, I went to Boston Conservatory, uh, eventually, by way of the North Carolina School of the Arts. So I started with drama and then ended up in musical theater and then graduated in 2004 and immediately booked a show uh, at the Goodspeed Opera House uh, in a musical there. Uh, moved to New York at the end of that summer. And uh, the, the director who had put me in the regional show at Goodspeed uh, offered me a, my first off-Broadway contract. Um, and then I booked a TV series by accident, you know, and, uh, and uh, you know, and one thing led to another and the rest is sort of history. <laughs> so that's the that's the, the shortest version of my uh, my theatrical journey as I can muster. I love that. So it's interesting. One of the things I think is is really important is that you're doing musical theater. You did some Broadway shows. But at the same time, like you said, you accidentally got this TV show. I think it's important to to sort of explore with other areas of acting, don't you mm. think? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, being an actor, as everybody knows, is um, a, a treacherous career path. It's a very difficult career path. And there's a lot of competition, as everybody knows. Um, but I think having as many tools in that tool belt as you possibly can. I mean, I have friends who I know from the theater world who sustain themselves mostly doing voiceover work that their fans don't usually know that much about because it's sort of their side thing. Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but yeah, the, the people who and it's becoming more and more normative that people who do theater also you know, go in between film and TV gigs um, and yep. back to theater. That wasn't really the case a, f a generation ago. So um, that's a new phenomenon, but it's great. And um, but yeah, I, you know, now that I'm teaching and I'm sort of, it's in that bio that you read, but I'm uh, one of the two new co-heads of this musical theater program uh, just outside of Los Angeles called Cal State Fullerton. And, um, you know, one of the things I immediately came in and, and thought was, you know, we're, 
just outside of LA. And yes, it's a musical theater program, but we have film and television acting training on campus. I don't think we can, I don't think we can train people in musical theater in the 21st century, especially this close to Los Angeles without uh, mandating that they take at least one acting for the camera class, you know, because I really think you, you really, in this day and age, you really have to be able to do as many things as possible just to make sure you can feed yourself and have as many uh, opportunities as possible once you're outside of, you know, college. So yeah, I, I highly recommend it. <laughs> I couldn't agree more, and I love having you say that. I have a daughter who's a senior this year and uh, is pursuing musical theater, and mm. we're we're searching out all the best programs with colleges right now. And um, yeah, so I'm always encouraging her to 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 broaden her horizons in learning, as to just for all the exact reasons that you said. Yeah, absolutely. It's tough out there, so you want to give everybody, you know as many cards in their deck as, as you can. <laughs> Absolutely. So did you enjoy Boston Conservatory? I did. Um, I did. Boston's an amazing town, a college town. You know, there's something like 60 or 70 colleges within the city limits. It's insane. Um, but I'm also a history nerd. And, you know, although America doesn't have a ton of history because we're not that old, um, Boston goes back about as far as you can go, yep. <laughs> um, which is is pretty exciting when you're nerdy about that kind of thing. So it's just a, you know, it's a beautiful, weirdly quaint, you know, major city. So I really, uh, I really liked it. And the conservatory was sort of a, it, it really allowed you to sort of choose your own adventure a little bit. I came in well, as my as my bio kind of attests, uh, I have a lot of different interests. I, you know, mm -hmm. I wanted to, I wanted to direct. I wanted to write um, in addition to acting and singing. So they let me do all those things. Uh, they gave me the space and allowed me to write and direct my own musical in my I think my junior or my senior year. Um, it was stuff like that that they kind of went above and beyond to just give me the education that I wanted, and I was I was sort of driven enough to ask for those things and. Um, and they really stepped up and made that happen. And I don't know that every school would have done that. So I really, uh, I really had a great time there and still have friends, you know, obviously that I hang on to 20 years later. So, uh, yeah, so I had a, it, was, it was a good thing. And they got my, my voice into fighting shape. I was, I knew I could sing, but I was not a professional singer when I entered the conservatory. But when I left, you know, I, I, I had a voice that was capable of sustaining a, a career and it did. You know, so oh, that's I fantastic. Yeah. So I can't say, uh, you know, enough about them. They, they did a great job. So let's talk about one of your greatest accomplishments. I know you've had several, but like, is there a standout one that, and I know that this is a hard question because there's so many and then and it evolves, but like, is there that one moment that you thought at that time, wow, I've made it like, this is exciting. Yeah, you're right. It, it's hard because there's so many things that that meant a lot to me. Um, but I'd say the one moment that I was wa really waiting for, and I think most of us are going through this industry and being what it is. I it was the moment it was after the the first performance, not the first performance, but the opening night performance <laughs> of my first full fledged originated, you know, Broadway role. So mm -hmm. getting to that curtain call. And taking that curtain call is sort of a, it just felt like a victory, you know, a moment of sure. saying, I, I did this, I made it. And we, we, d we created this show, we got it on its feet, we went through the preview period, and now we are officially open. And now I'm 
sort of officially in the history books as, you know, I was here for this. And there's just something very special about that very specific moment in time, stepping out, taking that bow and saying, I did it. <laughs> um, so the, uh, Walter McBride, who was, he, he was a photographer who covered a lot of Broadway events, um, got some great photos of that moment, uh, that I really cherish because it, it's, it's, it's sort of amazing to have the memory of it, but to also have it captured. <laughs> oh, um, for sure. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty special thing. So, um, uh, so yeah, I'd say if I had to pick one single moment, I'd probably put it there. All right. Is there a special memorable performance or a, a memorable event that you did that just has a fun story associated with it that stands out for you? Oh, man. I mean, there's a ton of them. Uh, the most memorable ones tend to be when things went terribly wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, fire alarms going off in the middle of a song or some, somebody in the front row getting sick all over somebody else in the front oh, row. No. You know, is stuff stuff like that that or people forgetting their lines, me forgetting my lines, technical glitches where the sets don't come on or they do come on but they do terribly incorrect things or what what <laughs> they fall apart. Like whatever. Like those are the those are the things that really stand out. So uh they're not joyous in the moment, but in hindsight it it really it's I always joke that it's the reason people go to live theater is there's a part of them that just hopes Something happens <laughs> that is not supposed to happen, and they'll be the ones who are live and there and 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 seeing it happen. Uh, so, but when it's you who that's happening to, you always feel like it's it's some terrible e event. But uh, the reality is, you know, everybody's game for it. They love when you recover from it, and sure. uh, <laughs> yeah, and they love being there. They love that they can say to their friends, "Oh yeah, I was there the night that the curtain." fell you know or whatever whatever exactly, happened exactly yeah. they they love to have that as part of their story that they'll tell absolutely yeah for sure all right so let's talk about um as an artist social media is a huge part of what you do and creating a fan base and what are some ways that you continue to build your fan base up or engage in the one that you have i mean yeah, this is a whole new world. You know, this stuff didn't exist mm -hmm. when I was coming up the ranks. And um, it's sort of interesting because it gives all of these young fans and not just fans, but a lot of times the fans of theater folks are people who want to be theater folks. You know, they're young people who are admiring yeah. the industry and want to join it. Um, and so to have access to people the way that we do today is you know, it can be seen as a blessing and a curse, but I try to look at it as much as of a blessing as I can, because I think it's great that you can reach out and just speak to the people that you look up to and get advice from them. And uh, a lot of them are offering, you know, uh, either master classes or one-on-one -on -one coachings these days, especially after the pandemic. Um, and I think that level of access is fantastic. Like that word is thrown around a lot, you know, access, access, but, mm -hmm. um, I actually, I really believe in it. And, um, uh, and so part of my, um, it's, I don't know if it's a strategy, but it's sort of a philosophy on <laughs> social media is, um, I try to be as accessible as possible. You know, I, I'm not, um, and I have the luxury of that because I'm not, uh, and sort of a list celebrity, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm just a working guy. Um, so, I can manage the amount of people who reach out to me and really give them at least an acknowledgement 
of their efforts to to contact me and to um, and to have some communication with them. I mean, you have to be as a performer, as as the one on the receiving end of of all of that. You have to be somewhat careful because not everybody has the purest of intentions, and um, there are people who, whether they I don't know that they're malicious in that sense or not, but they may not know how much they're they're asking of someone. Um, mm-hmm. And so you have to kind of be <laughs> responsible for yourself and take care of yourself. There's a point at which you you want to respond to everybody all the time. And, um, and that can get tricky. So mm-hmm. uh, I acknowledge that. But at the same time, I just want to be empathetic to if someone took the time to reach out. It's a little it's a little miniature act of of courage to do that. Uh, you know, to put yourself out there and say, I, I want to ask a question. I want to, you know, I, I want help on this topic or um, whatever it is. So I try to, you know, I lead with kindness in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's in, important, uh, especially anything that involves social media, because even if it's meant to be private on the social media spectrum, it could easily become public. So I, I think, you know, being as as mindful of that as possible is important, but ultimately beyond that kind of theology behind it, I you know it's just content creation. It's giving people something to um, to to view, and that kind of falls into those categories of is it is it are you posting something for it to be entertaining for those people? Are are you posting it to inspire them? Are you posting it to educate them on something? Um, those are kind of the main three things that I think social media posts should be about. Um, uh, you can post personal stuff, but you know, again, you've got to be careful how much of your personal life you're putting out there, um, uh, into the world, because I think that I think having a healthy boundary for yourself is also important. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, I, I don't want to be on a soapbox too much, but those are my few <laughs> knee jerk reactions to social media questions. <laughs> okay. Well, I've got a big one for you and I'd love to get your sort of thoughts on this Ooh, okay. because I know a lot of young actors and in, in, in that are pursuing and a career in, in that area. And so there's this, you need to put your your work out there so that people can see it. And generally the fans just absolutely love it and appreciate it. And yet there's this thought and I, and I hear a lot of them talking about it. They don't want to put things out there because if it's not perfect or it's not the best, and then someone's going to see it and then people are going to judge that that's who you are instead of you're evolving. And I just see this as I'm like, I'm sure people just appreciate being entertained to some degree and they're like well what if what if somebody who's going to see it who might be wanting to hire you for something and thinks that you did a bad job on that and i'm how serious is that on social media oh i mean for young performers particularly i i don't think that's incredibly uh realistic i think that's more about our natural fear of failure, our natural yep. fear of not being enough. And that really will haunt you forever. And so f- the first thing, whether, you know, no matter how high up you go on the, the ladder, um, I think the first thing to acknowledge is there is no such thing as, as getting it right in performance. Like it, when we talk about acting, you're not, uh, there's this mythology about, <laughs> did I do it right? And some acting teachers 
actually make that worse. They build a structure. You, no, no, that's wrong. You, you, that's the wrong choice. That's the wrong whatever. And the truth of it is there is no right or wrong. There is no absolute truth. Um, all that we're looking for ultimately is someone who can tell a story believably. And there are so many shades of gray in that and so much subjectivity in that, that mm-hmm. you have to take all of it with a grain of salt and release this idea that there is a perfect there is no perfect. That's not a thing. So if you hold on to it and try to achieve it, well, you're you're never going to be satisfied with it. And maybe even getting uh, releasing the notion of being satisfied with your work. Uh, I don't know. I don't know many artists who are ever a one hundred percent satisfied with the work they did. And I'm talking top tier artists. You know, you hear Viola Davis talk about how she has imposter syndrome. You know, if Viola Davis has imposter syndrome, then what shot do any of the rest of us have? (laughs) You know, like uh, Mm -hmm. rather than fight it, except that you're never going to feel like you are the the thing that you aspire to be. And that's good because if you ever achieved it, you (laughs) you wouldn't have anything to keep reaching towards. You would stop growing. Yeah. So um, so no, I'd say celebrate the process. And I think that is part that's a confusion that a lot of young actors have is they they think that to be a good actor is all about the final product. And uh, and it actually has nothing. The final product has nothing to do with what we do as artists. As artists, our job is to simply engage in and celebrate the process. And so I'd say that young artists should celebrate that even wherever they are on the, on the spectrum. Because here's the thing. You can always take a post down later if you, if, you, if you think you've grown past it and you don't want that phase of your process to be documented anymore. Like you can take it down. Uh, not many people are out there scouring the Internet for young artists and saving the videos saying, exactly. well, one day if they become famous, I want to pull this terrible video back out. Like no one's thinking that far ahead. And the truth is nobody cares that much. People are just scrolling through their phones. Um, so I'd say release all of that that nervous energy. It's it's not going to serve you. I love that answer so much. I can't even <laughs> I can't even begin to uh, tell you that was a great response. And that comes up so much, mm. uh, so much. I just think that, and you're right. It's not just young people. It's everybody that goes through this. Oh yeah, uh, process. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should, too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. 
Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. That's bluehost.com wondersuite. All right, let's talk a little bit about your book. That was a complete diversion from what you've been doing. And and it was a huge success. So you want to fill our, our readers in a little bit on the, you don't have to tell them the whole storyline, but like a little bit of the premise of that. And then what was that like writing the book and, and going in a completely kind of different path? Yeah, the the book it has nothing to do with theater. Uh, <laughs> so um, I, I published it under my full name, Joshua Stephen Grizzetti, mainly so that when you search my name, Josh Grizzetti, you're, you're going to come up with the acting stuff that you've, that you were probably looking for. Um, and if you're looking for the book, you'll, you'll find it in different venues because they're, they're just totally unrelated, but the book is, um, essentially a, a spiritual memoir about my journey with, you know, the divine, <laughs> uh, however that, uh, should be expressed. But I grew up with conservative Christianity and fell away from it and then had this sort of <laughs> uh, accidental drug overdose in a doctor's office where I just had too many things in my systems. And I, bas- I basically had a had a hallucination. And in the hallucination, I, I met God and had this, you know, 200 year conversation with it them, he, she, they, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but with the, uh, the thing that I believed at the time created all things. So it was a, an intense experience and I came out of it and, you know, I, I wasn't planning to write a book or anything. I was just like, well, that was a crazy experience that I had. And it, it was life-changing. I won't, I won't deny that, but, um, mm-hmm. uh, because I believed it, you know, I, and, and in the moment it, it was all very, very real. So, um, so it had a sort of profound impact on me. Um, but I kind of, although I told my friends about it, I wasn't planning to write a book or anything. And then somebody sent me a couple books. One was called heaven is for real, which was about a very similar sort of story, uh, about a boy who was under anesthesia. And, uh, I guess you could say he, he could have died because he was in a, uh, a life-threatening situation, but he never actually died. You know, his heart never stopped. He never stopped breathing. He was just under anesthesia and had this vision of of divine things. And his father, who was a Christian uh, minister, wrote a book chronicling what his son saw because um, the boy was only three or four years old or something. Oh, very wow. Young. Yeah. So it, it all had a slant to it. And as you can tell from the title, Heaven is for Real, it was meant as proof that the traditional sort of Christian theology is all 
real, right? And that this young boy saw it, and now it's going to be documented for others to read. And uh, and there was another book called Proof of Heaven that was sort of similar. Um, it wasn't quite as specific to the traditional Christian narrative, but it was similar in concept. And and I guess those types of books stood against everything that I had experienced, which was you had this experience, but this is not intended to be proof of anything for anyone else. This was meant just for you. And so I was like, I feel like I should write my story to be a counterpoint to those stories. So that was really the the impetus to put it on paper. Um, so that was it. So I did. And uh, originally, because it, it has traditional Christian themes. Uh, so if you grew up with Christianity, you would, you would, it will probably resonate more with you because you'll know what all those themes are. But, um, but it's also pretty sort of, <laughs> uh, some of the Amazon reviews will say sort of hippie new age, sort of, you know, Eckhart Tolle, you know, uh, theology. Um, so it doesn't vibe well with traditional Christianity. So the people we pitched it to, to publish, they all said, look, they had consi- very consistent feedback. They were like, "We love the, we love your voice in the narrative. Like it's very, cl- it has a very clear perspective, and it's fun to read. But we don't know who the demographic for this book is because it's too progressive for most conservatives, and it's too conservative for most progressives on a th- spiritual perspective. So we don't know who to sell this to. <laughs> and um, and so I just eventually was like, okay, well, nobody wants to read it. So I just self-published it. But then it ended up doing very, very well as a self-published book, um, so much so that a, a couple years later, um, after it had, it had hit that number one spot in uh, on Amazon's uh, bestseller list for spirituality and religious psychology and garnered, you know, a hundred reviews or something, which for a self-published book is not normal. And so uh, a company eventually came out and, uh, and asked to republish it as an audio book. So they did that. And so now it is a published book, even though it wasn't, uh, originally. <laughs> um, and that's kind of where, it, where it left off. I, I don't really promote it that much at this point. I just kind of let it find the people it's going to find. And, uh, I've released it to the world. So, and I've done all that I needed to do with it. It was really cathartic to write that book. I ended up, I ended up really needing to write that book. I didn't know I needed to do it until I did it. But once I did it, just, there was just something that, um, <laughs> sort of the universe was like, yeah, that's, that was the right thing mm-hmm. that you needed to do. It's touched people's lives in a strange way. I've interacted with a bunch of people now over these years since it's been published. Um, people who think it's just, the, I mean, people who think it's terrible and that it should never have been written and it's the devil and all the things I've heard all of it. And then people who are like, I, I lost complete faith in anything related to God. And this allowed me to consider new possibilities. And now I'm on a different sort of spiritual trajectory than I was and stuff like that, where it's like, oh, wow, I just, you know, I never expected to be the person who would be able to have an impact on someone's spiritual life. I, I was right. always just the funny musical theater guy. So, um, <laughs> so it's a totally, totally different side of me and a totally different side of my interaction with the world. So I've loved it, but it's, um, but yeah, it's a very specific niche. And uh, so okay. I don't know if it's everybody's thing, but if anybody's interested, it's called God in my head and you can, you can get it off of Amazon. That's awesome. So it kind of like fits with our next question. And that is, how how have you navigated the business side of being an actor and artist and that of the creative side you know because they're sort of 
two different areas of skills. One is that I've always had an in sort of, well, not an interest in, I guess that's a weird way to say it. I've always had an eye on the business, even when I was very mm-hmm. young. I was, you know, I was one of the first, it sounds, it sounds really goofy now, but I, I was one of the first to say, I think we should all have websites. Like, I think an actor should have a website and there, and there should be like, you know, portfolio type materials on there. And everybody, you know, I was in college. I I think I did it while I was in college. So early 2000s, you know, 2000, okay. 2001. The internet was not that old at the time. And actors were definitely not that much a part of it. And now it's sort of a staple. Like you have to have a, whether it's a website or not, you have to have a digital footprint. Your, your demo footage has to be available online somewhere, you know, but, but at the time that was a radical thought. <laughs> um but I was I was also not the type of person uh, who was willing to be a starving artist. I just I knew that early on. I was like, I just don't I love this. I would love for this to be my career, but I don't love it enough to to die on that hill. <laughs> like um, I would rather just have this be a pastime and have this be something I do in my leisure activities than to be miserable my whole life because I can't financially support myself. And right. a lot, a lot of my professors at the time, you know, were like, well, if that's what you want, you should just go into something else because it's very unlikely that this will ever sustain you. And, um, I, I took that advice with a grain of salt, but I still held to it. And, um, and the, you know, for better or worse, the industry <laughs> always sort of was there. You know, every time I thought I was, I was getting close to the edge, I was like, okay, I think it's time to, to pack up my bags and go home. Something, a new, another project would come up and, and keep me afloat for another six months or another year. Um, and eventually 20 years later, <laughs> you know, I was still, still kicking around doing shows. Um, so, but so I always had that that in mind. I uh, so th- there was not as much of a separation between those two things. Okay. Um, for me, because it was always I leaned into type very early on. Like I knew I had a type, <laughs> um, and type is something that we. It's sort of a dirty word now. Like we don't like using it, and so pe- there's people who are out there using different words. Like, well, what is your essence? It's not there. There is no type. It's an essence and stuff like that. I to me that's semantic. Um, I <laughs> I think that as much as we should fight the idea of type and expand the idea of type, I don't know that we're ever going to completely get rid of it. I'm not even positive we should on some level. Like I uh, storytelling the the legwork you have to do in a narrative to explain why someone who is not the type you're expecting is the character you're seeing is it, it just takes more time and for a lot of shows particularly TV series and stuff that only have you know a, a 22 minute episode on <laughs> uh, uh, on a major sitcom or something there's you rely on type to tell to set up sort of the foundations of the story so that you can avoid having to give more exposition. Um, sure. and, I, and I don't mean to get too heady about this, but I think, I think it is, there's a, there is a practical reason why it exists. It's quick. <laughs> um, the downside of it is, is when it has pernicious effect. Um, and that's what we, you know, have got to keep rooting out. Um, and it's, I can totally acknowledge for those who are hearing my voice, but don't know what I look like. I, <laughs> you know, I am a tall sort of lanky, um, goofy looking white cisgendered male, you know? Um, so I, I look like the neurotic Jewish friend next door. Um, I'm not a leading man type 
I'm I'm going to be the comic relief uh, most of the time or a comic leading man. And the privilege that comes with that is that there are roles exactly like that. There are mm-hmm. roles written for people who look and sound like me. Um, so it's a privilege for me to embrace the idea of type because it served me. There are a lot of young performers who don't so neatly fit into a type category like I did um, or I do. So for them, this issue of type is much more prohibitive. And so unraveling that and and asking to reshape that, I think, is important for all of us to consider. So I, I, I know I'm arguing two sides of that coin, but I think that there are two sides of that coin. Um, I don't think it's a it's an absolute ism. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, so anyway, so that is part of how I navigated the business and the creative side is I just married them very early on and embraced that this is what it was, um, which is also what we were asked to do in my generation. That's what I was trained to do was look, you just find your place and, and navigate within that spot. Now the theology is just different. The theology is there are no spots, there are no boxes, you know, so don't let anybody put you in one. And yet as I can preach that as an, as an educator, it's part of what I speak about, even though I give both sides of the coin when I teach as a person who's still in the business, I am very much typed <laughs> like, uh, and, and no one, you know, maybe as a goofy looking white guy, no one is, is interested in seeing me break out of that type. And if, and although my type is changing based on the times I'm now starting to, now that I'm aging, so I'm not just a young, mm-hmm. quirky white man. I'm an aging white man. So now I'm starting to go go out for roles that are the villains of plot lines that are about diversity and inclusion because I can I can represent uh, something about you know older or aging white men. So it, to know that that all of those conversations are still happening, that is still type casting. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> so I still can't get away with it, even in a modern context, it, at least me. So I'm only speaking from the eye here. But um, but that is how I have been navigating it. I hope that's not too uh, <laughs> transparent, but I like to put all the cards on the table when I talk about stuff like this. So forgive me. Oh, I loved it. And I think it's a I love the two sides of the coin uh, description there with type. And I think for a lot of artists out there that are listening to this, especially in the acting world, that that's great advice. I think. Um, I loved it. I loved that Mm -hmm. conversation. Well, good. (laughs) All right. So our kind of signature question of the show is what does working from your happy place mean to you? Oh, I mean, as an actor, as a, as an educator, as a writer, like all of that just comes down to choosing the, the, the projects that you work on for, for joy. Like if it doesn't, it's, it's a Marie Kondo effect. It's uh, Mm -hmm. if this, if this does not bring you joy, life is just too short. Like it's not worth it. It's not worth working with those people that um, might have amazing resumes and might be great for your career in some way, but are just going to make your life miserable for the months or the years that you're working with them. It's just not worth it the boost for your career is to me is not worth it. And that again comes from a place of privilege. I've already checked off the boxes I wanted to check off in my career. You know, I did the Broadway thing and I did the TV thing and, and I loved all of it, you know, but so it, it gives me a peace of mind that not every young performer has. So 
people might need to make different choices for themselves along the road. I worked with some people who I absolutely despised, <laughs> you know, and who made my life hell for the time that I was with them. Um, and some of it hardens you and strengthens you and builds you up in some way. It allows you to get through some stuff. But at a certain point in your life, I think you have to start making decisions based on what is it that f- fulfills you. And if this isn't it, whatever it is, it doesn't matter how good you are at that thing. It doesn't matter how much you love that thing. If it's not bringing you joy, it's time to release it. Um, so I'd say that is the founding principle of how to work from from my happy place. <laughs> Great. So what advice would you give to, and especially you're in this business now of, of teaching young actors, but what advice would you give to someone wanting to start out and, and pursue this as a career? Oh, it's there's so much. I guess, I guess partly because I teach, I, I see so many young actors and see what they're bringing into the space. So it so depends on the, the individual. But overall, I would say, stop trying to be the people that you look up to and start trying to figure out who you are. I don't, very few young actors approach the work in that way. They approach it trying to reach to become someone else. They never want to look inside themselves and see what do I have to offer? Because they never believe in themselves. They never believe that they have anything to offer. Um, And part of that is our fault as educators. You know, we sometimes skip over some of the steps of celebrating what a young artist brings to what they're doing. And we go straight to the critical feedback, straight to the problems, straight to here's what you need to fix. And when that's all they hear, sometimes they can start to believe there is nothing inherently good in what I am doing. Like everything is bad. Every, I've got to fix everything. And that can lead to some, you know, some really discouraged young artists. And it actually doesn't lead to the best sort of growth, I think. Um, so, I take it on myself as being part of the solution to this. It has to be a balanced sort of feedback. But um, but for the young artists, just knowing that even if you're getting those tough teachers who are only focusing on the critical stuff, um, keep pushing through and keep remembering that you're there for a reason. You deserve to be there. It wasn't an accident that you were placed in that spot at that time, whether that's a role, whether that's a spot in a class, whatever it is, um, and that there you have value and that you have a voice that is worth others hearing. So tap into that, figure out what, what you have to say and say it, um, and stop trying to be someone else. I love that. Well, this has been so awesome, Josh. And how can our listeners connect with you or find you? Well, luckily my name is, is pretty specific. So if you put in Josh Grisetti into the internet, (laughs) whatever it comes back with will be a path toward me. So, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, you can find me on Instagram, you can find me on Facebook, you can find me. uh, My my book is on Amazon. I have a website, uh, Josh, just my name.com. So, you know, whatever you, whatever comes up on your Google search, you know, it'll be a road in my direction. So come and find me if you like. All right. Well, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing with our listeners today. I so appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Belinda. All right. To all of our listeners out there, thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe or follow so you don't miss a single great episode. And the best form of compliment that you can give Josh or myself is to share this with a friend. Thanks so much for joining us today. And we'll see you next time on Work From Your Happy Place. Thanks for joining us at Work From Your Happy Place. 
If you like what you hear, please share it with your friends and be sure to rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher. For a free gift on finding your own happy place, please visit workfromyourhappyplace.com and click on the free audio button. Thanks again for listening. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.